The absence of any data on the risk that COVID-19 poses to patients with rheumatic disease has been quite unsettling for the entire rheumatology community. It kind of feels like we're all just fumbling around in the dark right now. Rheumatologists in Australia have been championing the effort to shed some light on this by getting doctors to record case studies all around the world. Australian rheumatologist Dr Philip Robertson has led the formation of the COVID-19 Global Rheumatology Alliance, which was launched in mid-March. This alliance is coordinating the data collection on patients with COVID-19 and rheumatic disease. Today I'm joined by Dr David Liu. So David Liu is the Alliance's regional lead for Australia. Um, I'm hoping he's got some updates for us on how the pandemic is panning out for patients with rheumatic disease, but it's very early days, so let's just see. Dr. Liu is a rheumatologist at Austin Hospital in Victoria. He's also on the editorial board of Rheumatology Republic. Dr. Liu, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Felicity. It's great to be here today and I'm looking forward to talking about COVID-19. Yeah, I'm so keen to to hear your insights because, I mean, as we were just saying, this thing is moving so quickly. It's really hard to keep up um, and I'm sure that patients that you have are struggling and other rheumatologists are struggling. So just to kick us off, do you want to let me know what are some of the things that rheumatologists are talking about right now? Absolutely. I mean, I think there are a lot of questions that are quickly evolving and uh, rheumatologists, just like the rest of the community, are trying to um, get a quick grasp on on what's happening. And it's, and it's difficult because it's a quickly moving space. Uh, I think there are I mean, I'd broadly think about first about the type of things which are affecting our patients and then secondly, the kind of things which are affecting our practice more broadly, which I think have equally as much of an impact, if not more. So right now, I, our patients are, we're worried for our, for our patients on a few different levels. I think we're, anytime we talk about infection, we're worried about what the implications will be for our patients on immunomodulatory therapy, um, and particularly on biologics. And I think that's been one of the big questions globally. Should What should we be recommending for our patients on TNF inhibitors or biologics of other mechanisms of action or even JAK inhibitors? And to confuse the picture, there have been uh, propo- proposed, uh, there's been proposed utility for certain biologics in certain situations in COVID-19. So early on, we saw that baricitinib had some plausibility in um, in, in part of the uh, as part of the therapeutic algorithm for dealing with COVID nineteen, as far as a biological plausibility was concerned, but no clinical data whatsoever, complete absence of clinical data, and that tocilizumab and possibly anakinra had some have potentially have some role in dealing with the cytokine release type phenomenon that we see with um, uh, the latter stages of severe COVID-19 as well. So that's confused the picture completely. And so it's hard to know what to recommend for our patients um, who are on, on biologics. And then the bigger question has come about hydroxychloroquine. And this has become political and and real very quickly. I think all of us are worried about what to do with our um, severe lupus patients who need their hydroxychloroquine, our rheumatoid arthritis patients who need their hydroxychloroquine, um, and what to do with these patients when they can't get their hydroxychloroquine, which is the situation um, on the ground right now. And we're dealing with that on, on one hand and, and a limited supply of, of a very useful drug that no one really cared about um, apart from us up until very recently. And then on the other hand, uh, it's being lauded by um, some um, and certainly by some politicians in the US, uh, whose, whose names we can mention as we go, uh, who have who think it might be a panacea for all the problems that COVID-19 um, 
uh, might present. And, you know, Clive Palmer in the mix as well. We can't forget about Clive. So there's that's part of the balance for our patients, trying to make sure we advocate effectively for those patients um, to be able to get access to hydroxychloroquine. And I think the ARA have been really great on the front foot about that, but that's something that I think bothers all of us as rheumatologists. On the flip side, it's changed our practice completely. Uh, we are wor worried about, um, uh, well, our patients are worried about in-person consultations. A lot of our practice um, has rapidly changed to telehealth um, and, and telephone consultations in a way that I didn't think uh, I'd see for many, many years to come. I think we as rheumatologists have always been a bit reticent about, um, about losing that physical connection. We're inherently hand-holding people, but um, you know, we like to, to physically examine. It makes a difference for what, to what we do. Um, and our patients like to see us in person. We inject as well, and we can't do that over the phone or um, over telehealth. And all of a sudden, we've been forced um, to, to make a change. So it'll be interesting to see what the long-term implications are of this. Um, we, this is something where I think a lot of us are being forgiving of the situation. A lot of our patients are being forgiving of the situation. And, and when COVID-19 comes and goes, um, which, which hopefully we all survive, we all get through and, and we get past this, at the end of it, what, what are the implications going to be for our everyday rheumatology practice? Um, if we go into a recession, even more so, what happens to our... Um, the capacity for our patients to uh, what um, to access private rheumatology? Will they still have the same desire to pay a gap, or is this a kind of thing that they will sacrifice? Uh, what about allied health? So I think there are all sorts of questions, both for our patients that are bothering us, and then also for our, our practice, which is which are bothering us. And and it's a really uncertain time for a lot of rheumatologists on that, on both of those fronts. Yeah, and I think that's a really good recap of all the things that are affecting patients with rheumatic disease right now. I mean, the hydroxychloroquine one is, I mean, it's, it's just blown up. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> I mean, I can't think of any other patient group that's been quite as affected um, by, you know, the scramble to find a new drug. Um, and I mean, we could go down all the rabbit holes. There's so many papers that are coming out and so many different perspectives. But um, I thought what we could do is, is maybe talk a little bit about this global alliance um, that you're involved with, uh, because this might have some answers for us about how COVID-19 is going to affect patients with rheumatic disease. Um, so do you want to give me an update on, on where you're at with the global alliance? Have you got any data coming through yet? Yeah, and I perhaps should give you a bit of background as to what it actually is, because some of the listeners may not necessarily have heard of it yet, although um, it's amazing the support that we've got in a very short period of time. It strikes me as strange that three weeks ago, this uh, Global Alliance uh, did not exist at all, and then it's rapidly um, come into being. Um, I happen to have been standing in the wrong place at the wrong time, and I've been caught up in it, but it's been it's been a whirlwind that's been a, been a lot of fun to be um, part of. So really, what this came about from it was a, um, a discussion that happened on Twitter uh, about what to do with our patients, um, what, are, what the implications of COVID-19 were for our patients with uh, medications, and, and how on earth we were going to derive data. There, there weren't data coming out of, um, out of China that were relevant to this, um, and there was a lot of concern um, from around the world, from the US, from Europe, and, and um, from us as well, about what to do. 
so Phil Robinson um, from from Brisbane was one of the key um, uh, forces in this, and and he became chair of the Global Alliance. Uh, Rebecca Granger as well um, from Wellington. She's been really uh, really key as well in driving forward um, the literature review um, section of the Global Alliance. And this is a, a group of people who are trying to. Um, from around the world who are trying to address all the areas of need as far as um, rheumatic disease and um, COVID-19 um, are concerned. Um, so the main initiative behind that is um, the um, the provider registry. So um, that's, that, that's a registry which is for um, rheumatologists really to um, record rheumatic disease patients uh, who have developed COVID-19. Now, um, that's not going to answer all of our questions, um, but what it's going to do is be able to derive data about rheumatic disease patients um, who have uh, who have developed who have been affected um, uh, with COVID nineteen. It's going to it's going to uh, help derive information really quickly, um, the pertinent information, which can help us to make some quick decisions now and and um, really help guide our practice in a data driven way. And this there was a massive need for this because. Um, this was the main reason why I got involved with the, the Alliance, because um, I was sitting there when this was starting to emerge, thinking, what on earth am I going to recommend for my patients? What kind of data do we have about rheumatic disease patients in COVID-19, with COVID-19? Um, and it was pretty clear up until a very short period of time ago, until a few days, until the Alliance came along, that uh, there was almost no data. Um, there were, um, and maybe that's partially because um, the Chinese series, which came out first, the, the, the cohorts that were described, didn't describe rheumatic disease um, patients uh, well. Maybe it was the kind of thing which was brushed aside. Maybe the, maybe, um, the diagnoses um, aren't as comprehensive in that population as they are in, in a population like Australia's. But um, we saw that out of some of the first cohorts that we were talking about one patient or two patients with uh, rheumatic diseases or autoimmune diseases, nowhere near the kind of numbers that we needed to be able to start to answer questions like uh, what um, what kind of effect might medications have um, on COVID-19, medications leading up to the diagnosis of COVID-19, medications um, during the course of a COVID-19 infection, should we be withholding medications, should we be um, continuing medications? And I think, you know, up until um, we get some data, um, you know, we as rheumatologists are torn because we know that um, our our medications can uh, have some infection risk associated with them. But at the same time, we know that active disease um, has some uh, infection risk associated with it. And that also that not all infections are the same. Uh, RNA viruses are the same as bacterial infections. Um, are they the same as tuberculosis? Of course, the answer is no. Um, so I think what's been really good about the Alliance is being able to derive some of that, that data really quickly, um, that as time goes on, and this is a quickly evolving space, we need data now. We can't wait um, to, um, we can't wait, a, we can't wait a couple of months to be able to do the comprehensive um, uh, uh, data linkage uh, exercises that we'd like to do and that we will eventually do. But we need right now data to be able to say this is what's happening in, in play. And I think where it's become really um, obviously pertinent has been back to that subject of hydroxychloroquine access. Because in the US, with Trump getting up and saying very loudly that um, hydroxychloroquine is the solution to COVID-19, 
it's understandable that hydroxychloroquine supplies vanished quickly. Um, and our patients need this. Fundamentally, our patients need this, um, f- not just for their best outcomes, but really some of our patients need this to survive. And if they can't get it, then we're really, if we can't help our patients get it, then we're really doing them a disservice. So some of the early data um, that's come out of the, um, the provider registry from the COVID Alliance, and, and what we're trying to do with that is to be able to make sure that we have regular data cuts um, There will be some published um, uh, sooner rather than later in a peer-reviewed journal, but there will be, um, which is in the works, but uh, the whole idea is that this is, we're we're publishing cuts um, on social media, on the website, to try and give people the information that they need. What this has shown from the first cut is that 25% of the patients in the registry um, are on hydroxychloroquine. And this is really important because uh, what's been thrown around in the US, and in fact, I think on, I think it was on Fox and Friends that someone um, uh, asked a question, well, um, are patients who are already on hydroxychloroquine even getting COVID-19? Someone needs to look into this. Well, we had the answer. And the fact is, yes, they are. So maybe hydroxychloroquine is useful in um, COVID-19. Um, maybe it's not. I think the data is yet to really become clear on that. And and people are working on randomized, on properly sized, randomized, properly um, properly designed, randomized control trials, and they'll go through the process that they need to to be able to know whether this is something that's useful in COVID-19 or not. But what we can say at this point is that we have proven indications for hydroxychloroquine, and the data from the provider registry gives us a quick answer in saying that COVID-19 isn't um, solved by hydroxychloroquine. So we need to balance, that helps us to make the argument about the balance as far as hydroxychloroquine is concerned. Sure. Um, and one of the questions that people keep asking is, do people who have rheumatic disease have a higher risk of getting COVID-19? And if they do get COVID-19, do they have a higher risk of dying? Have we got any answers on that? Uh, well, I don't think we're going to get all the answers from the provider registry. Um, because we're, I mean, there is an, an element of um, that this is a, uh, there's something of convenience here. These are, these are patients who um, we have encountered, that members of the registry around the world have encountered who, um, who are their rheumatic disease patients who have developed COVID-19. We, and I think that's an issue that, uh, there's, that's an issue in terms of COVID-19 epidemiology in general. I think we all have um, heard a lot about testing uh, in general and, and being able to try and understand um, true numerators and true denominators. Um, but I, I think what we can say is that even from early data, it's been relatively reassuring in terms of um, the number of patients um, who have been on uh, biologic DMRs in the registry. You'd think that you, there's no um, clear reason um, why uh, the registry entrance would bias away from biologic therapy. If anything, they might um, bias towards, given that a lot of um, these providers are from um, uh, tertiary quaternary referral centres, academic centres in the US, and where biologics would be managed. You'd think, if anything, biologics would be overrepresented. And um, the most recent cut from the Alliance, uh, which came out on April the 3rd, um, showed that 45% of, of the patients in the registry were on biologics. So it's while it, it's hard to know whether that's, um, that is necessarily a little bit high or a little bit low, we certainly know that it's not a lot high. We know that it's not like biologic um, biologics are really badly um, distorting uh, the risk of our rheumatic disease patients.
Of course, we need cohort studies to find out more about that. But hopefully what these data from the provider registry will start to show is particularly as well what happens in terms of, and um, we'll get some quick data on what happens in terms of um, patients who have their biologic stopped um, during the um, the course of COVID-19 and patients who continue their biologic through the course of COVID-19, patients who stop their methotrexate um, during the course of COVID-19 versus patients who continue, um, and, and for other conventional synthetic DMARDs for steroids as well. And um, while we don't have the data for that yet, because it takes a bit of time for people to go through the co course of COVID-19 and to, to be able to find out those outcomes, we'll find them out far more quickly, far more quickly through the provider registry than we'd ever hope to find out um, from um, even observational cohort studies. And I thought the advice was don't stop your steroids, don't stop your DMARDs, because having uncontrolled rheumatic disease is way worse than um, being on some of these medications. Um, that is probably a generalisation. Um, <laughs> but it sounds like some people are, are stopping those medications. Is that right? Well, I, I think, uh, well, we're not, we're not saying uh, for people to stop their medications um, uh, in terms of a preventative a risk preventative measure um, to try and stop getting COVID-19. But I guess the question is, once you get COVID-19, if you're on a biologic, what should you do? Now, the British guidance um, is to consider stopping, uh, to consider withholding um, DMARDs uh, in that situation. Um, I don't know if we've got clear answers on that. Uh, I mean, that's what I would um, presume as well. But at the same time, I don't really know. And I think it's hard for us to know um, uh, without seeing real-world data. Right. So, yeah, it's the roll of the dice. You know, the clinician could go either way. That's interesting. Yeah, and, and to some extent this means that I think that ambiguity, and I know this isn't a randomised trial, but um, if it, it gives some element of randomization to seeing what these data show. So I think there are, there are plenty, I mean, and there are plenty of other things that will come out of this registry and particularly, um, you know, regarding COVID-19 outcomes in our patients. But um, this is really the quickest way to try and get the data that we, can, we, we need to be able to make better educated decisions about our COVID-19 rheumatic disease patients. And where can people view the data as it comes in? Yeah, absolutely. I, I thought you'd never ask. Um, room-covid.org <laughs> is a website. Um, so that room, R-H-E-U-M-COVID, C-O-V-I-D.org. Um, all the data is in. It's not just the provider registry. Uh, there's a patient um, experience survey as well, um, which we're hoping to roll out um, in various different Australian um, cohorts in the very near future. That's all part of another collaborative um, process. Um, and uh, I mean, the registry, the, the Alliance as well, um, will be putting out more data on literature reviews to try and distill the, the relevant information um, to provide it to rheumatologists. Um, there's a paediatric um, uh, component as well. Um, and so that's, that's something that we're trying to push forward to try and give those answers um, for our paediatric rheumatology colleagues as well. So, um, COVID, so room-covid.org is where you should go for to enter patients into the registry um, or to, um, to find out more about what's going on. Of course, there's stuff that uh, goes out on, on social media. And, um, you know, I think for the, the, big, uh, the, big, the, um, the big points are coming out in, in the mainstream media. So two of our Alliance members were interviewed by CNN um, the other day on hydroxychloroquine. Um, and I think I'm glad that we are being able to defend our patients 
in the broader um, in the broader media um, environment because uh, really that's where we need to be. Everyone's everyone's looking at healthcare right now, and we need to be able to defend our patients in amongst everything that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. That seems to be like one of the most important things that rheumatologists can do right now, just make sure that their patients are getting access to the medications that they need. Um, Dr. Lou, thank you so much for your time. That was really interesting. And I hope that, you know, other people find your thoughts interesting and um, definitely check out that website with the, the results as they come in.